0: Holy Word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 19, Jeremiah 5 1 through 19, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note, search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her, Though they say, as Yahweh lives, yet they swear falsely. O Yahweh, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Therefore a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn In pieces, because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh? And shall not I avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not Yahweh's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares Yahweh. They have spoken falsely of Yahweh, and have not said, "He will do," and, and have said, "He will do nothing." No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind; the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word. Behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people wood, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar, a house of Israel. O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. It is an enduring nation, it is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb, they are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares Yahweh, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has Yahweh our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, outside of your grace and truth, there is not one of us who does justice and seeks truth. We have spoken falsely of you, we have blasphemed, we have presumed upon mercy and grace for no reason, and we are worthy of every curse and judgment for our sin. And so have mercy on us anew and afresh, we pray and ask in the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ. Turn our hearts afresh to you in love and adoration and gratitude. Father, we pray for your church at large. that has so often spurned Your grace, that You would grant true repentance. And we pray You would keep us from denying You. Father, may we, as we contemplate Your justice today, Leave not questioning you, but being in awe that you would show mercy on such as us. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Names have been referred to as handles. and Though I'm not absolutely certain of all the etymology involved here, No doubt it is because names help us to pick something up. They prove useful in that way. It's peculiar how naming a thing can help so much in understanding it. But this shouldn't mystify us because from the beginning, man has been naming things. And once named, conversation can ensue. So let me give you a handle by which to pick up this chapter. Theodicy. This chapter, verses 1 through 19, give us a a theodicy. That is, they seek to vindicate the goodness of God, the righteousness of God. A theodicy is is one of those questions that begins like this. How can God be good if? This particular theodicy seeks to justify God's justice. To show the justness of His justice. To show that His justice is just. And that this is so, you can see in a series of questions as they unfold and build throughout this chapter. There's first the implicit question behind the command in verse 5. Run to and fro, look and take note, search to see if you can find a man. One. The question is, is there a man who does justice and seeks truth? Then you have Jeremiah's rhetorical question, verse 1. O Yahweh, do not your eyes look for truth. And then the flurry of questions that God puts forward in verses 7 through 9. Shall I, or, or how can I pardon you? Shall I not punish you for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And these are all building up to the climactic question that you have in verse 19. Why has Yahweh our God, Yahweh has Yahweh done all these things to us? So, the command of verse 1, along with the rhetorical questions posed in verses 7 through 9, and the conclusion of verse 14, all answer the question of verse 19, showing the justice of verses 15 through 18. Let me run through that again. The command of verse 1 search. With the rhetorical questions posed in verses 7 and 9. How can I? Shall I not? Shall I not? And the conclusion of verse 14. Therefore. Judgment. All answer the question of verse 19. Why? Showing the justice, the justness of the judgment in verses 15 through 18. The theme of verses of chapter, excuse me, chapters five through uh, four through six. The theme of four through six is judgment, and in the middle, chapter five, you have this theodicy showing the righteousness of God's wrath. God calls for a thorough search to be done of Judah to find a single man who does justice. And seeks truth. And once again, these commands as we saw in chapter 4. At the beginning of of last week's passage, 4 and verse 5. These commands are all in the plural. Y'all run, look, take note, search. So God is again calling upon the nation to obey. And this time whereas she was before to speak a message to herself, this time she's to examine herself. And whenever you're looking for a needle in a haystack, it's reassuring to know that you have an army helping you. But, whenever you are looking for a needle in a haystack, it's likely because someone has told you that a needle is there. In this instance, the way God poses the command, that's called into question. We have a haystack, but is there a needle? And if there is, the quickest way to find it would be to set fire to the haystack. The search that Judah is to carry out shouldn't be a hard one. It shouldn't be a search for a needle in a haystack. It should be a search for wheat in a wheat field. In chapter 2 and verse 21, God said that He had sown choice seed, pure seed. And planted a choice vine. So it shouldn't be hard to find grapes. What God is looking for here is what He has sown. And what He has sown is covenant love and faithfulness. And that's what he's expecting in return. This search for truth and justice here should be thought of in covenantal terms. Truth here can be, is translated as faithfulness by the Christian Standard Bible. Um, That's that's perfectly along the lines of what's being communicated here. And and further, you, you see that whenever you notice how often there's this pairing of justice and truth, and, and so often righteousness is thrown in there with them, and chesed, covenant love, steadfast love. These are all terms that are jumbled together to communicate covenant fidelity to the one who's redeemed them and called them into covenant relationship. And so Yahweh has sown covenant love, and that is what He's expecting in return, And He promises if one, just one needle is found, He will not set fire to the haystack. Or to use the biblical metaphor, if there's just one piece of grain, He will not blow away all the chaff by the hot wind out of the east. God isn't asking them to do something illogical here. He's not asking them to find a square circle. He's asking them to search for what should be, but isn't. Does this search remind you of any earlier biblical episode? You remember in Genesis 18, where Abraham pleads on behalf of Sodom? And do you recall the theodicy that's set up by Abraham there? Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the righteous, sweep away the place and, and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And he goes on to plead. Suppose 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And God in immeasurable grace stoops to say, Even if there are 10, I will not destroy the city. And now, he calls upon Judah to find... One. And now we shouldn't be really strict and wooden in how we understand what is being communicated here, because Jeremiah is in Judah, and we will see a small handful of other persons who are who are righteous as well. But the point is this: the wickedness of Judah exceeds that of Sodom. Searching for wheat in this wheat field has become as difficult as finding a needle in a haystack. And whenever they're conducting this search, they shouldn't be fooled by the tares. Though they say as Yahweh lives, yet they swear falsely. In chapter 3 and verse 1, we saw that Judah's return was presumptuous. Chapter 3 and verse 5, her Pious words were empty, but her wicked deeds were full. Chapter 3 and verse 10, she did not return with her whole heart, but in pretense. It was show. And so it was that Yahweh called for His people to swear as Yahweh lives. Chapter 4 and verse 2, to swear as Yahweh lives in truth and in justice and in righteousness. To make their vows, their covenant vows of repentance to Yahweh in truth and justice. And now do you see He's calling for them to search for any who seek truth and do justice. And all their vows are empty of those very things. While Judah is renewing her vows... Presumptuously, in pretense, her wanton eyes are scanning the crowd for her lovers, hoping they're adoring the beauty that's been heaped upon her by her covenant husband. Jeremiah tells us, Yahweh is not fooled by this. Verse 3, O Yahweh, do not your eyes look for truth. Yahweh explained to Samuel, Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward, the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. And that was spoken concerning David, the same David who charged his son, saying, Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will cast you off forever." Several times in Jeremiah we're told that Yahweh tests the hearts and minds of men. 11:20, 12:3, 17:10, 20:12. And so it is that Israel's pledge, the ring of her pledge of fidelity to her Lord is seen to be made of fool's gold and God is not fooled. He realizes he he recognizes it for the cheap trinket that it is and he puts it through the furnace of affliction so it will be made obvious what it is he strikes verse three but they feel no anguish he consumes but they take no correction their faces are as hard as rock they refuse to repent or as jeremiah put it earlier in chapter three and verse three they have the forehead of the of a whore and they refuse to feel shame Now you note what's happening again is that Jeremiah is obeying where the nation failed. He is surveying the nation. And after his search, he says in verse 4, these are only the poor. They have no sense. They do not know the way of Yahweh. Now don't you know in our politically correct atmosphere, that would be met with instant backlash today. But what's Jeremiah getting at? Well, you notice the comparison between the poor and the great is not one of wealth, but of knowledge. Wealth is a factor here. Who are the great that he's referring to? Because there is an element of wealth. Who are they? They're the Levites, the priests, and the kings. They're the great. But the point of contrast is their knowledge. For this reason, the Levites were the ones who were to instruct and teach. And the king... Upon his coronation was commanded by God to write his own copy of the law that He might do it. You see, that is why they know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. And yet, all alike have broken the yoke, burst the bonds. they've proven unfaithful to the covenant. The results of this survey then are the same as that one that we see in Psalm 53. God's survey that He does. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God, but... In that instance, God is surveying the pagans who are eating up His people. In this passage, the survey is of God's people themselves. And they've all fallen away. And it's for this reason, because their transgressions are many, their apostasies, their betrayals are great, that a lion shall strike, a wolf devastate, a leopard is ready to pounce upon any who would leave their cities. Sadly, the search for righteousness, for justice, for truth, for faithfulness, for steadfast love proves too often just as futile in churches. Where you would expect wheat You find only weeds All the vows Oh there's lots of speech But all the vows The pledges of love are made of fool's gold the furnace of affliction proves them so Whenever the state says Bow to the golden image of homosexuality when they bend the knee, it's only showing the one that they proposed to long ago. Whenever the ratio of weeds begin to exceed, begins to exceed the number of the, the amount of wheat, that stack will not be long before the fire consumes it. When the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot. Whenever a branch doesn't abide in the vine and proves fruitless, it's tossed into the fire. Whenever this pyrite ring, this fool's gold is cast into the fire, it isn't that God is shown to be unloving. But... Those who claim to be His people proved unfaithful. They're exposed as false. Now we must not forget that we are every one of us sinners. Grace is unmerited, justice is deserved. But where grace is spurned, judgment is doubly merited. That's what we have here. So God asks, verse 7, how can I pardon? One shouldn't presume on pardon when they've forsaken Yahweh and sworn by false gods. Yahweh has fed them and yet they commit adultery, trooping to the the houses of whores. Yahweh's faithfulness has been met with infidelity. So how can He pardon when they're like well-fed stallions who... Release their energy in adultery. They're taking the blessedness that Yahweh has heaped upon them. And using that to fuel their covenant infidelity. Shall not he punish and avenge them? Verse 9. Justice. Wrath. Punishment. Condemnation. These are expected this side of Eden. They're not shocking, they're not surprising. And so, having so questioned his people in verses seven through nine, how can I, shall I not, shall I not? He then commands the pagan nation in verses ten through verses ten and eleven, they're to go through her vines and destroy, strip away her branches, because they are not his. They've proven treacherous. They've betrayed their covenant Lord. Does not much of this remind you of those words of Christ when he said, I am the true vine? John 15. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire And burned. Now here, as though as it appears the pruning is severe, it's not complete. There's this glimmer of hope, verse 10. Make not a full end. Isaiah spoke of it this way. A stump is left. The stump of Jesse. From which will come a branch the branch which will prove to be the true vine. Don't miss what Christ is communicating there. He's the true vine. Everything that Israel failed at. He is. They, the search for truth was not found in Israel. They were a wild vine. But Jesus is the true vine. They were fruitless. And He is the first fruits of the harvest of the age to come. And but not only are God's people treacherous, verse 12, they're blasphemous. They speak falsely of Yahweh. He will do nothing, they say. You remember in 4, 5, and 6, the commands there. To go and proclaim and tell. were given to the nation... To command themselves. And they were to pronounce the certain judgment of God coming upon them. And instead, this is what they say. He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. Nor shall we see sword or famine. They're like a wife. Cheating on their husband, mocking him, daring him, thinking him either incompetent or impotent. He'll do nothing. They lie calling God a liar. It's the words of the false prophets chiefly in view here. 13 makes that clear. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. There's a play on words here that we can miss. The word for wind is often translated in the scriptures as spirit. It is the word used to speak of the spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so they will become wind in this negative sense because there's no word in them. The spirit is not in them, is not with them, is not upon them, anointing them as a prophet. And so they'll become wind in, in a negative sense because there's no wind in them. In any positive sense. First Peter 1 Peter 1.21 explains. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These men are not carried along by the wind of the Spirit. They are carried along by their own will and desires. And so they become wind. They become what their words are. In that negative sense. They are just empty Wind. Twice in Jeremiah we read, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols for his images are false and there is no breath. There is no, same word, wind. There's no spirit in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. You become what you worship. They worship idols. They become as empty as them. They become wind in in this empty and meaningless sense rather than in any positive sense. And as a result, because they have spoken in this way, Yahweh's word in Jeremiah's mouth will be a fire to consume them. They will be as wood, His words as fire. There are two different yous in verse 14. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, because you, that you is plural, referring to the nation... Because you have spoken this word, this word being, he will do nothing. Because you, the nation, have spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth, singular, referring to Jeremiah, a fire. And this people would. And fire shall consume them. The people speak saying god will be silent and god speaks saying he will silence the people their words will be seen to be wind his words a fire to consume many prophets today presume prophets presume to speak for yahweh for christ There's no fire. There's only hot air. Wind. They claim the Spirit, but there's only wind in this empty, meaningless sense. As soon as the pastor says, the Spirit speaks to me, walk out and find one who will say, the Spirit spoke saying, and then quotes some scriptural reference you don't need a fresh word fresh words stink you need the holy word of God full of the sweet aroma of Christ because Christ saves and nothing else there is salvation from judgment in Christ alone not in any fresh word that says He will do nothing. Your best life now. Love wins. Girl, wash your face. Jesus calling. The secret message of Jesus. Or what St. Paul really said. Daryl Harrison refers to this as pneumatological ventriloquism. Pneuma being the Greek word for spirit. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneumatological ventriloquism, putting words in the Spirit's mouth. Those claiming that the Spirit spoke to them are full of wind, and these words of fire condemn them and their heresies. Beware of speaking falsely in the name of the Lord. Beware of putting words in the Spirit's mouth. And do not be carried along by such wind. Or you will be consumed by the fire. Now God directs their attention in verse 15 to the nation He's bringing against them. Two primary ways this nation is described. One is they are from afar. And this is coupled with they speak a language you do not know. So we could sum it up and say it is a foreign nation indeed that's the precise word I think you're you're meant to conjure up when you hear far away a language you do not know it's foreign keep that in mind the second way they're described is it's an ancient nation an enduring nation now what should pop into our heads if if we're saturated in the scriptures as we read this description I think we should recall a story that summed up this way Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh dispersed them all over the face of the earth. And so, I think it's clear that 5.1-19 are meant to hang together as a unit. And now you notice that at the beginning of it, God compares them to Sodom. And at the end of it, there is a comparison and also a pronouncement of judgment by Babylon. There's going to be confusion on their part. They're going to be dispersed and the works of their hands brought to nothing. And so then from the who of this nation, we turn to what they do in verses 16 through 17. Their quiver is full of death I think that's the idea of the metaphor, it's an open tomb. Or it could be the idea that as the grave is never full, we hear, we hear the, the proverb say, it, it's never satisfied. The idea is that their quiver isn't satisfied. It's, it's an open tomb, it's devouring. Which goes along with the next description. Their mighty warriors eat up harvest, son, daughter, flock, herd, vines, fig trees, destroying the fortified city with a sword. And yet once again there's this glimmer of hope in verse 18. I will not make a full end of you. But so it is that we come to the question why has Yahweh our God done all these things to us? Why? Now keep in mind that we have a particular question here. Why has Yahweh our God done all these things to us? You shouldn't think of the answer given here as a universal answer to theodicy in general. But it is an answer to a theodicy in particular. The answer you're given here won't satisfy for Job, for instance. And yet behind... Every question why, there is the same good and holy and righteous God. And there is the same ultimate answer for His glory. In reply, Jeremiah is to answer, As you have forsaken me and serve foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in the land that is not yours. They forsake their God, For the foreign, he forsakes them over to the foreign. He lets them know, you cannot just eat the foreign for dessert. You will have it as your full course. And you will find it's not so sweet then. You'll be made to taste its bitterness. Does this not recall what we saw in chapter 4, where his justice meets their transgressions perfectly. God's justice is poetic. It's not that God's is seen, justice is seen to be excessive in this instance, but their sin rather. Why, they ask? And the answer? Sin. So although we said this is a this isn't a universal answer to the question why, in one sense, in another it is. Because underlying all human suffering. Ultimately, foundationally, is the sin of Adam that plunged us all into corruption. That's not to say that the particular suffering you're facing now is due to some particular sin. Cause and effect in that way. But it is to say that all our agony is a result of God's curse. And this should remind us that the judgment Judah faces here is the one we all deserve. And so the real question is not one of a theodicy, but an anthropodicy. It's not the goodness of God we should call into question. It's the goodness of man. It isn't the story of the Bible that doesn't jive with the reality we live under. It's the narrative of this world that we're all basically good. That doesn't make sense. We ask, why do bad things happen to good people? When the question is, why do good things happen to bad people? B.B. Warfield writes, Righteous men amid the evils of earth seek a theodicy. They want a justification of God. Sinners do not need a theodicy. All too clear to them is the reason of their sufferings. They want a consolation. A justification from God. We are sinners and what hope have we save in a God who is gracious rather than merely just? Why do good things happen to bad people? Well, we could quickly answer... Because God is long-suffering and patient and benevolent. But that answer doesn't satisfy, does it? Because then we just ask, well, why do we get those good things? His patience, His kindness. Why Why any of that? To see why, let's return to that question that we discarded perhaps too early. Why do bad things happen to good people? One theologian answered, that only happened once, and He volunteered. And that's why good things happen to bad people. Peter tells us that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Why didn't God make a full end? Because he had purposed in his Son to redeem sinners by the blood of Christ poured out to placate, to satisfy the justice of God. Paul, after demonstrating how All men, every one of us is wicked and deserving of nothing but the holy wrath of God Almighty. Went on to declare. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Meaning apart from our condemnation. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. How can a good God love sinful man? That's the dilemma. That God is truly faced with in His actings on mankind? And the answer is, well, he goes on, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. If He's righteous, if He's just, if He's holy, and every one of us are deserving only of an eternal hell, how can He love man? And the answer Paul gives, it was to show this giving of Christ over as a propitiation It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The real dilemma is not, how could He judge? But how could He show mercy? And the answer is that the grace of God comes the Christ who suffered in the place of sinners, that they might be declared just. Sinner, you are not righteous. There is no truth. There is no justice in you. Shall he not avenge? His holy name. Do not delude yourself with words of wind. But hear these words of fire as they come down upon your very soul. And yet know this. There is hope. Instead of expected judgment. There is surprising grace. The grace is found in the Christ, who was born of the Virgin, the second Adam, who was everything we were not, righteous, and was reckoned as everything that we are, sinful. That He might bear everything we deserve, God's holy wrath. Repent of your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And then you will ask yourself. Not in anger but in praise. You will ask not in agony but in bliss. Why has Yahweh our God. Done all these things to us. Why has He given us His Son, made us new, destined us for glory, lavished an inheritance on us? Why has He done all these things to us? And the answer we will love to give again and again, endlessly into eternity, is simply... Father, have mercy and save any soul by your sovereign grace here tonight that you have chosen in Christ. Save them now by your holy word. And have great grace to us, your people now. Fill our hearts with gratitude, thankfulness so that you might receive the praise you are due. In Christ's name, amen.